Why does God allow us to suffer? The Bible teaches that God is sovereign. He is Lord. He has total authority, complete control, is 100% aware of everything that happens in the universe. And he is good. He loves us. If you're a Christian, you believe all these truths about God. But if you're like me, you've also experienced great suffering in your life. And this isn't just true for you and me. It's true of every person who's ever lived. Suffering is a universal experience. But if we're suffering, then God knows about it. And God is powerful enough to stop it. So God is sovereign, God is good, and God allows us to suffer, often excruciatingly. How do these truths all fit together? That is what we're talking about in this episode. This is Worldview Legacy, the show that helps Christian men become the worldview leaders their families and churches need. My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Bible teacher and former pastor who used to defend the Christian worldview the completely wrong way until God changed my attitude and my approach. Now, I help people to share and defend their faith with confidence and to pass it along to the younger generation. So we're going to answer this question, why does God allow us to suffer? And you want to be able to answer this question because you want to be able to answer the questions the world is asking. Well, this is one that everybody has. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure you've asked it yourself. This episode is going to help you on your journey to become better able to answer this crucial question. Today, you're going to hear from Al Miller. Al is a dear friend of mine. He's a mentor. He is a solid brother in Christ. And he and his wife, Mary, are fellow members of Redeemer Fellowship, our church, and they're in Elisa and my community group. Al is a man who has been following the Lord for many years and who has gone through his share of pain. Maybe some would say he's gone through more than his share of pain. He has been a successful businessman, and he and his lovely wife, Mary, have raised seven children. And together, they've gone through the valley of the shadow of death, which you're going to hear about. And they've stood fast in the promises and the presence of God. Al is the kind of man that you want to know. And he's the kind of guy that you need to listen to on many topics, but especially when it comes to today's question. Maybe you've wondered about how you would personally respond if the doctor gave you an alarming diagnosis, or maybe you have gotten such a diagnosis or someone in your family has, or you too have experienced your share of suffering and you wanted to articulate how you have been able to keep your faith in Jesus through it all. Or maybe you're struggling to keep your faith even right now, or it could be that you've simply been asked this question. Why does God allow us to suffer? And you want to give a solid biblical answer. This episode is for you. Some of the questions that we are going to answer in today's episode include, what diagnosis did Al receive and who started making funeral arrangements after he received it? What was it like getting a life-saving transplant? How did Al's attitude Toward suffering and God radically changed through his experiences. What advice does Al have for other Christian fathers? And what are the four lessons that his suffering has taught him? 
If you like what you hear today, then you will want to know about our free community. It's called the Think Squad. This is where you can connect with over 600 other members who are on the same journey that you are. The Think Squad members share ideas, insights, and interests, and get solid biblical answers to questions. This is also the place for you to get information on other worldviews and a better understanding of the tools of knowledge. I'm talking about logic, science, morality, and how to use all these in a discussion, especially with non-Christians. The Think Squad is 100% wokeness-free and extremely based by God's grace. I'll tell you more about the group and how to join at the end of the show. Yeah, my name is Al Miller. I grew up in Crystal Lake, Illinois, close by. I'm retired. I was forced into retirement through one of my many maladies. But uh, I have seven kids, and I can't keep track. Three of them, I think, are married. We have nine grandkids. And uh, that's opened up a whole new arena of, I would say, sanctification. But it's a joy. It's like having your kids again without all the baggage. Yeah, I was working. I worked 40 years in heating and air conditioning at different levels, salesman, field operations manager, etc. But then because of another malady, I was forced to retire because I couldn't see to drive. I went to school uh, in Valparaiso and on a football scholarship. And football was a big part of my life in high school and college. And that's about it. And then the the rest is history. (laughs) All right. Well, we are. I am here with my friend Al Miller, and we're going to explore fatherhood and grandfatherhood and really trusting God when he allows hard times into your life. And I really want to get into the good stuff. So to begin, let's begin with the challenge that I know you're very familiar with, Al. Can you please tell me what it's like to be a Presbyterian at a Reformed Baptist church? Well, that's part of, I was going to talk about that as part of suffering. Yeah. (laughs) It's a a hardship. Uh, Yeah. Actually, um, apart from the the baptism issue and and the congregational issue, there's not too much of a problem. Hmm. You know, And, and I find the church, I've been in so many different churches, Joel, over the years. I've been a Christian since I was 16, 1970. Hmm. And I've been in Pentecostal. I've been in Charismatic, Charismaniac, <laughs> uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, PCA. And now I'm a Reformed Baptist. I was at Harvest for a while. Some people might say, well, you could never figure out what you wanted to do. I always I felt that in part of God's plan for my life, he gave me uh, an ability to be gracious for people of all belief systems. Absolutely. You know, I remember the first time, my first conversation with you was at the men's retreat up in yeah. Wisconsin. Yeah. I sit down at the lunch table and I don't know who started it, if it was you or me, probably me, but we just instantly started debating some theological issue. And from there, it was off to the races. I've since discovered many of your theological flaws, but like I said, we're, we're working on that. We are little by little. That's right. For me, it's uh, I have quite a bit of respect for what you're trying to do with your ministry. And I think you know that. Yeah. And I've told you that. And uh, so anyway, I can encourage you financially or otherwise, I'm there. Well, you know, 
We really appreciate you and Mary and uh, your friendship and the godly example that you guys are setting both in your relationship with your kids and grandkids and how you're spiritually guiding them and then also just your own faith in the midst of the struggles and trials that you guys have had to go through. So let's get into that, Al. So you've got seven kids and you've got nine grandkids, right? Nine grandkids. That's amazing. This is one thing I was wondering about. As a young father, did you know you wanted to have seven kids? Yeah. Yeah. It changed. I mean, when I was 16 years old, I wasn't thinking about kids. Right. But by the time I got to be, you know, got married, hmm. uh, I came under the mentorship of a very godly man. He was the uh, headmaster at the Christian school where Mary was teaching. Hmm. And uh, I used to spend a lot of afternoons at his house after church. He mentored me and a couple other guys. And uh, I don't know if this is why, but he had 11 kids. And I just okay. thought it was cool having a big family. I just felt there's, it's like there's always a party going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he taught me a lot of good things about the importance of theology, but the proper place of theology hmm. in the Christian walk, you know? Can you give me an example of that? Like, what did he say about it? Well, that I think that... All the, good theology is transformational. It changes us. How so? Um, and head theology um, makes us a jerk or creepy, as Joe likes to call him. Yeah. So, Pastor Joe, yeah. So what was that like raising seven kids? And what's the age spread between your kids again? We had ten, uh, seven of them in 10 years. So from 1980 to 1990. That's, that's and, a lot uh, of diapers over those years. Yeah, believe it. Yeah. And then, um, uh, unfortunately, I, a lot of my the early years of being a parent and raising my kids, I regret. Um, long stories, we won't go into it here, but mm-hmm. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home and a lot of anger, a lot of violence. And uh, it served me well in the football field. But it didn't serve me well in relationships. Okay. You know, I could put that daddy rage to, to work on the field, but uh, not so much when my kids were misbehaving. And as long as they were 10 or younger, I could just make a mean face and they would fall into line sure. or there'd be a spanking. Yeah. Spanking, is that politically correct? I don't know anymore. I, I just assume nothing we say today is going to be politically correct. I just, I'm already resigned to that. <laughs> but, and so there was a real uh, falling out at times with different ones of my kids. Um, and mostly my fault. You know, I just, uh, I just was an angry man. That's all I can say. And, uh, but it's been very, very cool over the years as he's humbled me through much of what I've gone on in my life. Uh, I've seen him move in their lives and redeem them again, Hmm. you know, in a way that they come back to the Lord. And it's not daddy's faith. It's their faith. How did that happen? How did they come to the point where they own their faith? Did it happen when they were growing up, would you say, or did it happen later in life? Some did. Some it was, you know, when they were in teenage years, they had always been exposed to it. We were, you know, involved in the church at every level, you know, which is one of my besetting sins. I cared more about uh, doing things in the church and looking spiritual 
instead of being a dad and a husband and yeah. those kinds of things. So um, I think they saw both the failures, the forgiveness, especially on the part of my wife, and then their own forgiveness and and change in my life. They've, it's viable change. I, I can't ignore it. And um, I think seeing that said that there's there's always a way back. Hmm. There's always a place for repentance and change. And, and that's, I think, what they learned from watching Mary and I and my dealings with them over the 20 years they were in my home, you know. That's really powerful. Would you say that things changed when you received your initial diagnosis? Yeah, it was sobering. Uh, it was very sobering. Um, but it's a funny story. But because of my dad and the image I had of uh, what a father is, I transferred that over to God the Father. Hmm. And so when anything mean, harsh struggle happened, I felt it was like uh, uh, God is a mean kid with a magnifying glass. Hmm. And he's burning my antenna off. I think uh, um, Jim Carrey used that in Bruce Almighty. Yeah, And so that was the attitude. When something bad happened, I knew enough about his sovereignty to get angry with him. Yeah. You know, and blame I, him. So I, I was at the same point myself in my early twenties, uh, going yeah. through a really hard time. And like you said, I mean, I knew enough about God's sovereignty to know anything that happens in my life is ultimately uh, attributable to him and his plan. So I guess it's yeah. just his will to crush me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So what year was your diagnosis? Um, I was 40 at the time, hmm. so I was okay. 1994. Okay, we so... Had, we had gone on a camping trip. Before I had gone, I got a full physical, came back, and there were like six messages on my phone from my doctor. Hmm. Come in here, we got to look at things over, you got a bad chest x-ray. It turned out to be a disease called sarcoidosis, uh, same disease that killed Reggie White hmm. and uh, Bernie Mac. The comedian, you know, Is that right? and uh, so we monitored it for about ten years. You know, some prednisone, some other inflammatories, anti-inflammatories. But I lost the battle. I was one of those three to five percenters where it was going to be terminal. So, yeah, got the diagnosis, would... battled for ten years, and uh, when I was fifty, ten years later, I actually got a double lung transplant. Okay. I was watching your video about the transplant, and it looked very professionally done. One of the teachers that taught with my wife did some uh, audiovisual stuff with a club up there, and they came to the house with a couple people, and we shot that. So it's a really moving video. You can yeah. see how the death of somebody else brought you new life. Mm -hmm. When you got that call, what was your reaction? What was Mary's reaction? Like, did it catch you out of the blue? It did. I mean, I sat, I was sitting in his office, and I didn't know why I was there. He just said, you have an abnormal chest x-ray. Yeah. And then when he told me what it was, I, you know, I was blacked out sitting in the chair because it was like, hmm. oh, my gosh. 
I can't do it. I can't do this. I'm, what am I going to do? I'm going to die. And so nobody wants to die. <laughs> but, <laughs> so we all do. But it's like, okay, what are we going to do now? And and uh, thank God it doesn't happen in one big lump sum. He gives you time yeah. to process and deal with different things along the way. Merciful way of dealing with it. Yeah. What was Mary's reaction? Kind of the same thing. Actually, she had never, uh, when I met her at Valpo, she was a political science and history major. But then she was a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. We homeschooled all seven. We actually had them delivered at home, all seven. Did you really? Uh, Oh, yeah. Home birth. You guys were so hardcore, man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, she's hardcore. Um, She is hardcore. She said, I got to go back to work. So she went back to uh, National Lewis and got her master's in teaching and took a job in U46 and was there for 21, 22 years, partial years, a couple. But she got 20 years in, so she gets a pension. (laughs) Awesome. But she had to go to work. Before you got the transplant, my understanding is the condition was pretty serious. Mary even mentions that they had started making funeral arrangements. Yeah, just to be prudent. What was that like for you? As a, how did you feel about that? Well, it's like, you want, it's like when you have to tell your kids about the birds and the bees. You need, you know, you need to do it, but you don't want mm-hmm. to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's so, right. so it was like that's what we got to do. We got to be wise about this, and I don't want it all falling on you. So yeah. we were getting things set up to do that. Wow! And then um, Thanksgiving. The day after Thanksgiving, I think it was, yeah, um, November 28, 2004, we were sleeping in the bed. It was about 4.28 in the morning, and we got a pager back then. That's what they had with pagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Mary's running around the house. It's the transplant. It's the transplant. Had the kids that were here. Their friends were sleeping over that night. So we had to drop kids off. Get our kids rousted up, pick up a couple that were somebody's house, a logistics nightmare, and drive down to Loyola and start trying to process that I was about to be opened up like a five-pound Maine lobster. (laughs) (laughs) I was curious what this would be like because, you know, as you know, our son Lucas got a transplant. He got a heart transplant two years ago. We just celebrated his two-year heart anniversary, and... He was five years old at the time, and when you're five, you can't really articulate. I mean, you're just trusting mom and dad. Okay, it's time to go. And so I was curious what it was like for you as a full-grown adult, very cognizant of what's going on. What was that like? Were you afraid? Were you worried at all that you weren't going to make it out of the surgery? I I didn't know. I mean, they had great success. That's part of the reason we were there. Hmm. Um, But I had to call each one of my kids into where the pre-op room was and pray with them and and talk to my wife, you know, and share that kind of stuff. You know, you know, who wants to talk about this? But that's what you you had to talk about. Try to encourage them, try to tell them it's going to be fine no matter what. Yeah. And, uh, just as they were wheeling me out of the room, one of the nurses leaned over and said to me, Happy birthday, you know, and that was very cool. 
That Why'd you say that? Cool. It was the first day of the rest of my life. You know what I'm saying? The nurse, yeah. I was on the gurney getting ready to go into pre-surgery. And she leaned over and whispered my happy birthday. That's amazing. Because your new life's about to start. So you made it through. What was it like when it, you were... I made it through. I woke up. I was Velcroed to a, a t- uh, bed in ICU. Oof. Intubated in 12-inch respirator down my throat. I opened my eyes. I go, okay, I'm alive. It doesn't look like heaven. So <laughs> I'm going to assume yeah. I'm still here. And uh, they sent me home five days later. And uh, three, two months later, I was back to work. What impact did this procedure have on your fatherhood and what impact did it have on your faith? Well, I think leading up to the phone call and all that, things were beginning to change for me because suddenly when you, we all face death, you know, yeah. but this was more certain that I'm going to face death. Right. And as you do, you look over kind of the precipice and you say to yourself, what do I want to be remembered for? What kind of man do I want to be? Is this the legacy that I want to have, you know, when I, when I pass? Yeah. And, and so actually years before that, maybe two or three years after the diagnosis, and then, you know, God really began to do a work in my life. Mm. This is after the diagnosis prior to the transplant. Okay. But um, so there were things happening in our marriage and our home, good things, really good things. Mm. And yet um, I still had this attitude. And I remember being home before I went back to work, but I was at home. I had like 25 staples in my chest. They give you a clamshell cut. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like the way one tech at Loyola said it. His name was Tony. I said, so what's this like, Tony, when they open you up? He goes, well, if it's a single lung, they go in through the ribs. He said, but if it's a, a double lung or a double lung heart combo, he says, they saw you right across here and open up the hood. And <laughs> <laughs> they slide it in. <laughs> So after wow. they changed, after they changed my engine, I was sitting here in my lazy boy right over here, mm-hmm. and I had come down because the pain was excruciating. I was I was on two or three heavy duty painkillers, but mm-hmm. um, I couldn't get over the pain. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just rocking, and and something just happened. I don't, I can't explain it. It wasn't an audible voice. But I've said to myself, it doesn't feel mean anymore. Wow. It feels like love. And that was a Holy Spirit thing. Uh, that wasn't, you know, anything I was even thinking about. But it just came to me. And, and I, I grabbed a hold of that and couldn't let go of it. And I began, and just, the Bible just began to open up in all sorts of different ways about suffering, conflict, hardships, discipline. All that stuff in a totally different way. That every time something goes wrong in my life, it could be for a number of reasons. We suffer for a number of different reasons, and the Bible points those out. And great theologians have wrestled with the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. But for Al, it's, it doesn't feel mean anymore. It feels like love. Hebrews 12. You know. What, what does it say in Hebrews 12? 
every son he loves, he disciplines. Yes. And he says it throughout the Old Testament regarding Israel. Oh. He says it throughout the Proverbs. Every son whom he loves, he disciplines. Yeah. When you say it doesn't feel mean anymore, it feels like love. You're talking about the Lord, how you right. What I was referring to earlier when I talked about God with the yes. magnifying glass, that the hard things that came into my life weren't intended to um, be mean to me and just crush me. And was it Jeremiah 20 says, um, you've seduced me and you've raped me at one point. And it's like, what, what is that about? How can that be loving? But it is. And, and you go back to 2 Corinthians 12, where he, Paul talks about, because he had so many revelations that to keep him from being conceited, yeah. God had to give him a thorn in the flesh. And he said, I will boast. I will rejoice all the more in my uh, calamities, my hardships, my struggles, so that the power of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit, will dwell in me. The power of Christ will rest on me. So I'm going to embrace those things. Amen. When they come, I'm, I, I'm going to, I don't go looking for them, but they're going to come. And when they come, I'm going to embrace them because... That is the sanctifying agent so many times, at least in my life, which draws me closer, more dependent, and all of that on him. Yeah. I'd like to know your thoughts on this, Al. Does God allow hardship or does God bring hardship into our lives? He foreordains hardship. Okay. Can you flesh that out? Just the idea that... Uh, several passages in Isaiah, I think Isaiah 45 and others, he says, I create calamity, I create this, I create light, I create mm-hmm. darkness, I create good and evil. You know, and it's like over and over he says that. And to me, my view of God, I, I wouldn't have the view of God if, he, if I felt he could, was any less than that. Mm-hmm. And if he didn't control everything, it's tied to his sovereignty, it's tied to his, you know, majesty. But if he didn't control everything, how in the world can we call him a God? Yeah, that's right. You know? And so when I look at it, and the confession says, the very first, I think it's chapter 3, eternal decree, first section, God foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in accordance with his perfect will. And And that takes the focus off me, puts it back on him where it belongs, and it gives me a tool. It gives me a a, um, a means of grace yeah. to uh, embrace the conflict, the struggles that are in my life now. So you just know. for our listeners, when Al Miller refers to the confession, he's talking about the Westminster Confession. Right. Um, I'd like it a lot better if he was referring to the First London Baptist Confession. But, you know, it's it's fine. We don't always get what we want in life. And, you know... If you're talking to Al Miller, you're going to hear about the Westminster Confession. And yeah, so. and it's, plus, it's a plagiarized document. Uh, <laughs> no, the first was not. But I no, will you, say the first was incomplete. There's a lot of you, there's right. some doctrines that they're missing. And they said, well, that was we tried it ourselves, so let's borrow <laughs> from our elder brother, the Praetorian. Yeah, yeah the, elder, the elder brothers. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's, and, that's what they did, for sure. And we, and we can dial it in a little more. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, do you see how... Uh, 
theological debates break out, and it's it's definitely not Al's fault. It's definitely me. So how are you doing right now? What are some of the challenges? Right now, um, I've been on dialysis. Here's the domino effect of stuff. Mm. Uh, you get a double lung transplant, and you're expected to live five to seven, maybe ten years. Hmm. Yeah, that's the mortality rates. You know, 50, 50% of the people out there um, die within the first three years. Um, I think they wow. say another 75 or 70 die in the next five to seven years. I'm coming up on 18 years that's this amazing. coming fall. But That's amazing. The... The, the, you take it the double lung transplant. You you got to take the anti rejection drugs, as you know, the rest of your life. And but they are uh, very toxic. So along with my hypertension and my toxicity of the, I lost my kidney function. Mm-hmm. So I had to go on dialysis. I've been on dialysis for eleven years, and uh, because of other maladies and things that happen. Uh, I developed low, low blood pressure. And so in, in that process, some things in my arm have clotted up. They can't use a fistula. So we've gone over to what they call a peritoneal dialysis, which is the body uses your own peritoneum to filter the solution, draw the water out and the toxins. It was what the kidneys would do, but this does it through a machine. So uh, actually tonight... Uh, ironically, tonight is the first night we're going to be doing the peritoneal. And we've yeah. done some, some training, and Mary's scared to death, but I keep encouraging her she's not going to kill me. <laughs> and if she Mary does, she, awesome. she knows where the insurance policies are. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you're, you're facing current physical challenges. Al, are you ever tempted to feel this way, or do you ever feel this way? Okay, we made it through. We got the transplant. I learned my lesson. I understand I shouldn't have to deal with anything else. Do you yeah. feel that way? Yeah, Psalm 13. What's that? How say? long, oh Lord, how long? Hmm. You know, just that, and there's a refrain throughout the uh, Psalms in that way. When is it going to stop? And if you know anything about King David and his life growing up and his kingdom, it was constant turmoil and chaos. You know, and yeah. he's crying out, how long am I going to be facing these enemies? How long am I going to deal with these struggles? Every aspect of suffering in a fallen world that you can think of, he's crying out, how long, how long? Yeah. And, and that's, there's times I just say to myself, Father, I'm tired. I'm really tired. But like Paul said in Philippians 1, my, my wife doesn't think that, but I keep telling her it's better that I remain. <laughs> <laughs> to be with the Lord is a great thing, yeah. but it's better for you that I remain, and therefore I will remain. Uh-huh. And, and that's, I think, my biggest motivation is for my family, my friends, anyone I meet for that matter. I want to bring the gospel to bear on their life. However, I can do that. How do you do that? Well, a number of different ways. When they ask me, you know, I get names, you know, you got nine lives, Miller. You know, you you got this. How do you do it? I don't know how you do it. I just had a guy today I worked with for for years and good friends still. He goes, I don't know how you do it. 
And I said, God's been gracious to me, and the least I can do is serve him in, in return. And then I try to talk to him about it. He, he, he's been in and out of church, so mm. he's heard it. I just keep reminding him. And it's almost an opposite vein. I sit here sometimes under deep heaps of regret that I haven't done more. I feel such a sense of urgency now with, you know, whatever's going to come, but when, uh, just to be a light to people, to somehow be an encouragement. People are so just beat down and, and struggle. Nobody, nobody deals with stuff the way, I don't know, it's just something's for me is very uh, different about the way people deal with pain nowadays. It's avoid struggle at all costs. Mm. Well, I, Pastor Joe a couple weeks ago talked about it, don't pray so much for a change in your circumstance. Change for uh, pray for a change in your heart. And, and I, I, that's what I want to be able to do in my own life. Number one, but number two, spread that to other people, encourage them along those lines that this has come to make you a better man, better woman. Yeah. Embrace it. So when you think about the growing process and the transforming process and the need for study, the need to, to read good books and um, interact with authors, living and dead, who are some of the top authors or top books that you'd recommend for the the dads who are listening hmm. number one number one i'd introduce them to the classics you know like who? any of the even something as simple as aesop's fables when they were oh. young okay when they were young stuff like that just harvard's library of classics yes yeah. i got a whole volume set in the basement it's like doing the catechism with him at a young age. I can still remember we were doing the children's catechism with Jesse, and he had to be four years old. And uh, I said, Jesse, who can change a sinner's heart? And he looks at me and goes, the Holy Spirit alone. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's teaching his kids the catechism. Totally. And to hear him, it's like you see that, and you go... There's no amount of money you could stack on a table to make that worth it. No way. And more important or more valuable. And uh, so wow. just seeing that. And um, teaching him, another thing was teaching him not to take himself so seriously. Hmm. I think there's importance to being serious about real issues. But when it comes to yourself, learn to laugh at yourself. Learn to, you know, realize that as much as I study, I don't have all the answers. I won't have all the answers because God's going to bring something into my life to put me in a place where I don't have an answer. So what am I going to do? I got to trust. Good or bad, I got to trust. Yeah. So, and and I think, I think for, if I was encouraged fathers, it would be number one to be the personal side. Sounds really stupid. Practice what you preach. Don't be a hypocrite. Because your kids have an uncanny eye to see that. And they'll flip it up in your face when they get to a few more years. You're a hypocrite. You know, because you don't do this and you don't do that. So I would say, uh, in your life, 
what you can to obey God at every point and every level. But when you fail, let your kids see you fail. And I think that passage where it says, be angry and sin not in Ephesians, I just apply that to dads. Because so many times when a dad fails, he's dealing with his own inadequacies, his own incompetence, his own ability. And so he overcompensates by going home and yelling at his wife and his kids, mm-hmm. taking it out on them. And I think, no, teach them to repent in a godly way. You want to get to the heart. You don't want to change just behavior. It's not about behavior. It's about what comes out of the heart. And secondly, then, teaching your own kids how to embrace in failure. You know, what's it like when things don't go the way you want them to go? When you have pain in your life, when you have struggle and suffering? Nobody today, I don't believe, has the ability on a large scale to accept bad things in their life. They just, they have made a God out of happiness and no conflict. You see, just the way people break up now in a text message to each other. Different ways. They just, I don't want to face this person. I'm not going to go in. I'm quitting this job. They've paid me for four years, but I don't have the decency to go into my boss face to face and tell him why I'm leaving. No, man up. Walk into that. I think it's important for dads to fail in a biblical way and repent then in a biblical way and believe in a biblical way. And it teaches kids to do the same thing. And that'll prepare them for hardships that are inevitably going to come too. Would you say that your theological education is complete? No. No. So what role has the hardships that you've gone through in your life, the, the medical experiences, what role has that played in, in how you've studied theology? Do you feel as though your course of study would have been different had you not been diagnosed, been a transplant recipient, things like that? It's interesting because that, that event in my lazy boy that night where it's not mean, it's love. Yeah. Um, up to that time, there was just a, an overall, I said, anger and meanness. It was that event and that realization, which was a result of my lung transplant, mm-hmm. that uh, there was change, brought about change by the Spirit of God in my life. I wasn't studying anything like that. I wasn't. But now, when I read those passages, they explode off the page. It's like I, I have to, I have to go read those passages, memorize those passages, preach the gospel to myself over and over, and that draws me deeper to know Him. What is it in Philippians? He says that I might know Him and the fellowship koinonia of His sufferings. Mm-hmm. That I might know Him. I want to know Him. More and more and more. Well, I do that through the Word of God. What are some other daily routines that you have or regular practices that help you get closer to the Lord? 
I don't know if it's by choice, but it's it's happening. I, I'm not sleeping well. Had been for about the last six months. So I'm I'm retired. I get a cat nap during the day when I need to. Mm-hmm. But at night it'll be one, two o'clock and I'm down here and I've got an I'll have an hour of worship songs where it's just worship. Just worship. And and the music and the words touched a very special place in my heart. And I've been reading through the scriptures now. I'm in Esther. And it's like things that I totally missed or forgotten come bouncing back like a good friend, you know. And yeah. uh, so it's those early, early morning hours that I'm up by whatever prescription is keeping me awake. I don't know which one. <laughs> But, but it's been, they're very sweet times. It gives me a time to pray for people that come across my mind. It gives me a chance to, to read God's word. Um, and those things really make how my day goes. Hmm. You know, when you're retired and you don't have anything to do, it's amazing how many fights and struggles you can get into with your spouse <laughs> <laughs> and, and other people over nothing. Hmm. But if you have that kind of start in your day, there's something about it which just anchors you in the right place, you know? Yeah. I've been working on waking up earlier myself, and it is something that, by God's grace, I've been able to do more. Uh, Waking up, spending that time, ordering my day, making sure that I'm interacting with God's Word and prayer and filling up my tank so that I can go down and lead my children in the morning— it's yeah. it's been a blessing to me, but it's been a blessing to Elisa as well, because it's encouraging to her to see me doing that. That's that know, example that's side of it. That's see, what you, 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 you can be an example for two reasons. You can be example and show how you can live the Christian life through works of the flesh, or you can be an example of of a humble man. Hmm who just loves the Lord and seeks to obey him, follow him in every one of his commandments. So that's good. Imagine you're talking with a skeptic, an atheist, someone who's not a Christian. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, if your God is so loving, why does he allow people to experience these kind of hardships? How do you respond? Well, there's like four premises there and they're totally stolen from Greg Bonson. You know, God is all good. God is all powerful. Evil exists. Mm-hmm. And the fourth one brings it together. God has a morally sufficient reason why it happens. And because I'm not God, it's my my favorite scene in, in Rudy, the football movie. Uh-huh. And he asked the father, Father, have I done everything I know to do? And he says, Rudy, for 25 years, I've intense religious study. I've discovered two things. There is a God, and I'm not him. <laughs> you know, the otherness of the Holy One. Yeah. You know, and, and I think being able just to be able to rest... That's someone completely different from me. I only bear parts of his image as he allows, but who's totally separate and completely apart from me, chooses to come to me. 
and let me be a part of his story and his plan mm -hmm. and his will. And in that sense, it's like, okay, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm yeah. going to take each day as an adventure. What are you going to do today to give me an opportunity to to play with you, if I could be so irreverent? So if you were to recommend to a father who is trying to get his family on track spiritually, theologically, religiously, what's one recommendation that you'd make, Al? You'd say, okay, here's what you need to do to begin that process of building that legacy in the Christian worldview, in the Christian faith for your family? Number one, um, teach them the catechism. Number two, read the Bible to them until an age where they can read it to themselves. Get a copy in today's English of Pilgrim's Progress and read that after dinner each night. We did that for several years. Hmm. And it was like, okay. They could, they could get around that. They could, they could really go into it. That's good. And then, and then I think just being living a godly life before them, you know, not, but not because you're working at it, but because that's your calling. That's my goal. That's, he has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. You know? Amen. Amen. I got too many guys trying to live a perpetual childhood or something with their video games and whatnot. Uh -huh. I know I may hurt some toes here. But... Go! Hurt them! Step on them! <laughs> Come on! <laughs> I'm going to have my I, own boys listen to this, so please I, I, let I get, them have it. I got video games out of my system about 50 years ago. <laughs> right. You know, but right. and I see my I see Adam playing video games. I wonder <laughs> what happened here. All right, well, Al, any other final closing thoughts that you want to share? Well, I want to, I'm honored that you think I have something to say about it. I want to get that in for sure. And I've expressed to you that I'm honored to be called a friend of yours because I do believe in what you're doing and teaching and your commitment to it. And however, I can encourage you to keep doing it. And, and I would hope that our brothers, married or soon to be married, or maybe they're single, there's still things they can do where they feel inadequate. For instance, I, you're going to start doing the catechism. You're going to start reading a book. They're tired. They don't want to listen. They're rolling their eyes. And so what do you do as a man, as a leader in your home? Do you just bring down the law? beat them with the law, hammer them with the law, or do you see, take them aside and say, what's going on for you? Get to the heart of why they're not interested. Because hmm. if you get to the heart, you're going to win them. You've won them at that point. And thank God, if you have an opportunity like I've had to live beyond what is reasonable for someone with my stuff, make use of every minute. Hmm. Every minute counts. Teach us to number our days. He Psalm says. 90. Yep. Love it. So now you know. You heard about how Al Miller received 
a diagnosis of sarcoidosis and when he got this diagnosis and that he would need his lung transplant, the situation was so dire that his family actually started making funeral arrangements. We heard how getting his lung transplant was such a profound experience and how in many ways it was an intense picture of the gospel, like someone had to die so that Al could live. No one likes suffering, but you heard how the Lord took Al to the point where he could say that it doesn't feel mean anymore. It feels like love. Jesus Christ transformed Al's whole outlook towards God and towards his experiences, and he did it through suffering. God uses suffering in the lives of his children. The pain doesn't always come with clear-cut answers, but God can and does use our pain, the suffering that he allows us to go through, in order to show us his love. Yes, this seems counterintuitive. No, this is not going to make a whole lot of sense to a non-Christian who doesn't know the Lord. But if you're a follower of Jesus who has experienced this, you know that it rings true. The advice that Al has for Christian fathers, sing songs with your family, read scripture, catechize your kids, read the classics, read Pilgrim's Progress, and live a godly life in front of your kids so that they can see you trusting the Lord, not perfectly, but faithfully, by God's grace, in whatever God allows to come your way. All right. Now, let me tell you about our community. If you have the desire to build a worldview legacy for your family, then join the Think Squad now. This is the perfect time to become the worldview leader that your family and church need. Get connected to others who are on the same journey as you are and get access to the resources that we share and stuff to help you pass on your faith. Join the Think Squad group. All you have to do is open up Facebook and search for Think Squad. That's T H I N K S Q U A D. Answer the short membership questions and we'll get you in and get you rolling. That is all that it takes. So thanks for listening to Worldview Legacy. This episode was produced by yours truly, Joel Sedicase, and is a production of the Think Institute. We equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And we are based by God's grace. You know, while we're talking about Mary, I should let you know. So I sent out a request to our community group and I said, so what are some of the questions that you guys think I should ask Al? And Mary said, this is coming from Mary. This is not from me. She said, why are you so handsome? (laughs) You sure that's not from from you? (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to really clarify that is not coming from me. (laughs) Good. Well... I don't know. I, I don't see myself that way anymore. <laughs> uh, Lindsay also wanted to know, your daughter, Lindsay, who's also in our group, wanted to know who your favorite child was. So feel free to answer that or not. <laughs> I'd have to say Amy. Amy. Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll be sure to make sure we send a copy. Yeah, we, well, I see you tomorrow night. We'll, we'll have some fun with that. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, it's on record now. <laughs>